Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a podcast from Business in the Community, the Prince's responsible business network. It's powered by Fujitsu and it's supported by McCann. My two guests today are Anne Pickering and Ria Jahal. Anne is on the board of O2, the mobile phone company. She's the CHRO, the Chief Human Resource Officer, and she's also Chief of Staff. We'll find out what that entails in due course. Ria worked for a number of companies, including Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan. She took a couple of years out. We'll hear about that. And now she works with a whole range of companies to make them more successful, more inclusive and more diverse. We're going to talk about how organisations stay connected to people when they take a break for whatever reason and also how they help people get back into work after a few years away. We'll talk about why your workforce should reflect your customer base. And finally, we'll get the top interview tips from one of the nation's top recruiters. Let's get to the conversation. Anne, you meet for the first time today. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I happen to know you have both worked for at least one company in common. Would you like to guess which one it is? I'm intrigued. I'm um, here you go. Marks and Spencer? I worked at Marks and oh, Spencer. Bingo. Oh, there we go. That's a pretty quick one. Do you have good things to say about Marks and Spencer? You were both there for a few years. I have very good things to say about Marks. I joined their graduate training scheme many years ago. Oh. And um, what I loved about their training is they, uh, even as a, as a manager, they expect you to do every single job in your training. Oh. So when you come to ask someone to do a particular task, you've done it. And that's really powerful. And there are some skills that stay with you like. when you work for Marks Spencer, like. which is I can fold a jumper and pop it in my wardrobe <laughs> and it looks perfect. Well, some members of my family were wishing I'd done that. <laughs> Around this time of year as well, I always just think back. So mine was a little Simply Food um, in the village near yeah. where I live. Uh, and around Christmas time, you start to remember the gridlock of trolleys and the people queuing up the aisles and the turkeys flying yeah. and everyone accusing you of ruining their Christmas. And I always, I think it's a, it's a good grounding. I think for anyone that's starting a career, anyone that's done some time in retail, just has an appreciation for how you talk to people yeah. and how to respect people that little bit better. No, so, I completely yes. agree. No, it's world class as well. We'll come on to this. And I'm intrigued. You're not only CHRO, you're Chief of Staff. I am. What an intriguing role. What's that? Well, we appointed a new CEO, uh, Mark Evans, and after about six months, he said to me, would you like to come and sort of work a bit more closely with me as the Chief of Staff, but still doing your, your HR director role? And I thought, I would love to. So really, I'm a... In some ways, I'm a bit of a confidant for him. In some ways, he just said, could you pick up this, this and this? If you asked me to write the job description, I couldn't do it at all, Ollie. But just sort of going through everything that he needs to do and he'll say, I'll do this, you do that. So yeah. we split the duties accordingly. And I think the other thing is, particularly with a new CEO, having a voice that is a supportive, critical friend becomes really important. So having a relationship where you can say to him, you know what, you didn't quite hit the mark there, perhaps yes. if you did that. So that's the sort of relationship we have. A bit of a sounding board and, of course, a memory because over 15 years... 15 with years the with, with the organisation. So I'm, you know, I was so flattered when he asked me to do it and I really enjoy it. No two days are the same. Yeah, well, what a great challenge that is. So let's just remind our listener, of course, O2 is the brand we all know, uh, part of Telefonica, global mm -hmm. organisation. You are um, one of the country's best known leading mobile providers. You've got over 32 million connections on the network. 
at my last check, over 6,000 employees, about 450 stores, have I got that right? You'd be park? doing your homework, Ollie, well done. And, and, and you're sort of in charge of looking after all of them, essentially. Well, yes, I like to think I, I am, but I have a great team that works with me. But I think the big thing about working for a consumer-facing organisation, the same with Marks & Spencer, is you have to make sure that the workforce within reflects your customer base out there. So as you say, we've got the best part of 32 million customers. And if we don't understand them, we don't understand what makes them tick and what's important, then we fail. So what becomes really important in, in my role is making sure that the workforce reflects that vibrant customer base that we have out there. Yeah, otherwise you're relying on surveys and... Yeah, and sometimes, you know, we believe we know best and actually you need to speak to your customers and they'll tell you what they want. And just get that dose of reality. Let's, um, Let's rewind a little bit. How did you get started? What was your first job? You know, my first job was as a Saturday girl in a news agent in Liverpool, where I was born and brought yeah, up. Yeah. I'm still a massive LFC fan. And uh, one of the tasks always stays with, me, stays with me. One of the tasks I had to do every Saturday evening was mop the floor of the shop. And um, I became very adept with a mop. But what I realised was that that was actually about making the environment a pleasant and clean place for customers to come in, make Mm -hmm. it welcoming. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was when I first got the bug for wanting to work with people and customers. And it all goes back to being a 17-year-old in Liverpool. Yeah, so that's the first ever experience you had. But then studies, was business always beckoning? Well, I was, um, <laughs> I wanted to do dentistry, but I didn't get the grades. So I quickly had to pivot and I did an English degree. And I used to go home to Liverpool. I went to university in London. I used to go home to Liverpool during my vacation. And I used to work as a, a student in Marks and Spencer. They always took on a large number of temporary staff, typically students. And I really enjoyed it. And when I sort of finished my degree, I thought, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I thought, well, do you know what? I'll apply for the Marks and Sparks graduate training scheme. And I was lucky enough to get on. And worked in a variety of stores throughout the UK, very glamorous locations like Luton, Stevenage. Uh, I did several London stores uh, and I loved every minute of it. The variety, customers, they're so unpredictable. That made it really exciting. And as I say, the the lessons I learned there have stayed with me even till today. And when you look back across that career, any particular turning point, any moment that you look back and you think, actually, that triggered so many things. After I left Marks and Spencer, I went to work briefly in the city, which was an education, going from a very structured, process-driven organisation like Marks and Spencer into a, a Fidelity, which was an investment house that was growing enormously. So it was frying pan on fire. Mm. And then subsequently, I went to work for an IT services organisation. And after a few years, my boss was going on maternity leave. And I remember thinking, this is a big opportunity for me. So I bravely knocked on the CEO's door and said, could I cover for that maternity leave? Could I step up? And I said, and you don't have to pay me any extra. And she said, I will pay you extra. And yes, you can step up. The reason why that was a big moment for me is it made me realise I could do it. It made me realise I could step up and perhaps I could manage people and I could do the bigger job. And that that sort of maternity leave was a massive opportunity. So some people say they're lucky in their careers. I say you make the best of your luck. And that was, I saw that opportunity and went for it. And that was probably my turning point. Yeah, and put yourself forward. Absolutely. For it at the time. And in terms of O2, and I'm going to embarrass you to say that you consistently crop up in these lists of most respected, um, most influential um, in your field. What are you most proud of? I'm very proud of O2. Uh, You know, the company I joined in 2004 and the company that I lead uh, in 2019 has grown enormously. But one of that we've kept the culture, which I think is really important. Um, 
Things I'm really proud of. I was very proud when I got asked to go on the board. Very proud of that. Very proud of our uh, something that we introduced last year, which was our family policy. And that was about giving parents 14 weeks paid leave. So father gets 14 weeks paid paternity leave. We applied to same-sex couples, surrogacy, adoption. Really well received by the people who either didn't have a family or whose family were grown up. Um, it, and, and actually the, the, the external cover we got from that was, was enormous. So I'm, I'm really proud of, of that policy because I think family policy policies are really important and they it's those sorts of policies that make the separate out a good company I think from a great right. company. Did you have to overcome any resistance to make that happen? You know, I am really lucky. I have a really supportive, progressive board that understands that if you get it right for your people, you'll get it right for your customers. So it was not a difficult sell. The one thing I did insist on, though, was if somebody went off on 14 weeks paternity leave, that we would ask someone to step up into that role as a development opportunity. So that became a really nice hook as well. And, and again, that was very well received within the organisation. So if you had ultimate power, I know you're a right next door of the chief of staff, what change would you make now then to make it an even better place to work? I don't want to take you into a tussle you're having with your chief exec, but uh, come on, if, if, if it was over to Anna's CEO. That's a really difficult question to answer. You alluded to the fact earlier that we are part of Telefonica, our, our Spanish parent, who are a fantastic shareholder. And I love them because they leave us alone. And part of the reason they leave us alone is because we're actually very successful. I'm sure perhaps if that success didn't continue, they might be knocking on the door and asking, can we help? But perhaps if I look back, if we'd have got a bit closer to our, our parent company over the years, I think that would have been a positive. I think we're there now, but we probably could have started it earlier in the journey. Hmm. Well, that's an answer to a slightly different question, isn't it? But I like it. It's, it's, it's an interesting answer. But OK, well, I might give you time to dwell on it. But it just seems that, you know, some of the ideas that have really changed, though, too, you know, you have originated, if you think about your returners programme, yep. for example. So, well, first of all, let's talk about that. But I do want to know what's next, though. You know, what, what are the what are the sort of, you know, in this whole range of HR things you know, what, what are you pushing for internally? I'm trying to get a glimpse because you are seen as being ahead of the pack on this, Anne. So I think the world of work is changing. That will be not new news to anybody who's listening. And I think an HR function is really going to have to pivot to deal with this. Let me give you an example. At the moment, most organisations own people and we look after them and we develop them and we pay them. In the future, I think we'll be looking at accessing skills and therefore the nature of the workforce is going to change. We won't own people going forward. And that will mean we will need individual contracts with people. So what might be important to you, Ollie, is I want to be well paid, but I do want to work flexibly. I'd like to be able to use your gym. And actually, I could do with some help because, um, you know, I'm a bit worried about my mental health. And I will therefore be developing a, a personal relationship with you. And I think the world of work is changing and it's moving in that direction. And I think HR functions are really going to have to change to cope with that new status and workforce. And this is a good point, Ria, because uh, to bring you in, I say, because um, that concept of an organisation losing someone, mm. um, I mean, it is literally their loss. And in some ways you think, I wonder if JP Morgan has lost you. Yeah, I think that's quite an interesting idea that there's a sense of ownership. And I can understand to some point of view where that comes from, because certainly as a graduate, there's a level of training, you know, it's your first time in a sort of professional environment, there's a lot of support. So, yes, you do need maybe more at that level and therefore there's kind of an investment in you um, and that can sometimes be the trade-off that they've invested within you and now you need to return that. But I think it's quite difficult when it's not the right environment for you and that's something that I think you're trying to say that's quite interesting. 
you're not going to have to just be solely that bank or that firm for a long time because loyalty isn't rewarded the way that it used to be. So historically, people might have had 20, 25 years in a career and that's not the same trajectory, the same career path that we're seeing now. Is it a complete loss? I'm not sure because I think a lot of it will be quite cyclical and we'll see people returning, especially if your experience is good. But that's why it's so important that the actual environment and the atmosphere within the organisation is positive because you're not going to be getting those people having repeat contracts or coming back to you mm. if their experience there is not positive. It makes me think though the ability of a company to keep in touch with someone becomes incredibly yeah. important, doesn't it? Well, it's really interesting when we look at graduates and graduate recruitment, which is a sector that's boomed ridiculously, uh, especially in sometimes the trade-off, I think, with companies trying to uh, diversify and have that sense of belonging is to bring another company in to be the kind of intermediary. And sometimes that can be really positive. Sometimes that can be a little bit difficult. And I think what's sort of strenuous in that area is who are you putting the onus on giving that organisation to? Who are you asking to procure these people for you? And are you finding the right people to sit within those roles? And then when it comes to the retention idea... You're getting bombarded by LinkedIn, you're going to get bombarded by emails, mm-hmm. but are they honest? Is there any truth in what, what's being put out there? And that's where millennials, to use the coin, are finding it quite difficult because LinkedIn is just a highlight reel of people's careers, really. And sometimes you see those posts where people say, I've had a bad day, but they're really quite geared towards, look what amazing thing I've done yes. because of this bad day, right? There's no, there's no truth, particularly it's like the that. sparkling tip of the iceberg, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it's everyone painting the most rosy thing. So yeah. it's gone from just Facebook showing you everyone you ever know to, to Instagram showing you a really augmented version of how perfect everyone's life is to now you can see everyone else's amazing careers and that benchmark. And that can be quite tough when you're starting out because you're not going to see all the people that have been knocked back or certainly you won't see it till they've got this great opportunity to come out of it. And, and the full person, the full human being, isn't on show. And partly you might say, well, that's quite right. This is a professional environment. However, we need to understand each other. Yeah, I think where I struggle a little bit with the idea that everyone's becoming slightly more diverse is perhaps aesthetically, that's something that can be looked at. But the idea of having a workforce, and Anne said it so, so beautifully earlier, is if you want to serve your customers to the best and really understand them, your workforce has to be reflective. Now, that doesn't mean that when we all line up we're a pretty picture of different coloured skin and different genders because yes that can be some indication to our experiences but you know we we did an example at a bank that I went to and we had different stories of people different things that happened in their lives and we asked them to match them up and I had the same experiences as a boy called Connor from Wales when we looked at different things and we looked nothing alike certainly you would have thought oh diversity we've got one girl here and one boy there but actually what we were bringing to the table was very similar so it's important to look at the whole person to make sure you are tapping into everything they can bring. And just remind us, Ria, your own start. Yes. First ever job? First ever job. Oh, so well, I did a paper round um, and I used to be really naughty. I had German shepherds at that time, big white German shepherds. Gosh, um, it's like a scene from Narnia. It, yeah, it genuinely looked like wolves. Um, and I used to get, double them up and get two lots of Sunday paper rounds in. <laughs> and then I used to put the dog lead through the, <laughs> the metal and let them pull it up the hill. So um, I'm not, <laughs> not sure my parents were best pleased. Um, and then apart from that, it was Clark's. So I looked at the lovely little Clark's in our village again. And that's Clark's it. the shoe company? Shoe company, yes. Bit of an institution, not like Marks and Spencers. And um, very interesting. It's, it's a nice little area where I, where I was brought up. I was very fortunate. My parents lived in a nice place. And it was very interesting seeing 
the young children and the different parenting types that yeah. would come out of that because you'd have some children sort of kicking you in the head, some children swearing because they wanted certain things. And I'd think, my God, if I spoke to my mum like that at this age, absolutely not. And there's a five-year-old doing it. So, no, it like was a... a sort of a, an interesting view on all these different yeah. individuals and people. Studies in Sheffield. Study in Sheffield, absolutely loved Yorkshire. Not dissimilar to yourself, and Didn't really know what I was going to do. Toyed with medicine had personal experiences, wasn't too sure, then wasn't sure in the grades, then sort of panicked a bit and resat a year and, and in the end just just went for it and went to Sheffield because it was close by. So I was close to my mum still, didn't want to go too far. Um, but equally, it's great university and a great course. And engineering is where I fell, so yeah. Engineering. Then off you go flying into these different roles from a grad programme. Yes. Deutsche Bank. Yes. JP Morgan. And as you're full steam ahead... Your life changed? Yeah, so I'd been a little bit poorly at university, so I'd had, I guess, experience of time out. But university is quite a nice intermediary because you go from being a sixth form student and, and in, I guess, the care of your parents and things are still looked after, you know, meal times are still regulated, you still know what you're doing, to all this freedom at university, which can be great as a lifestyle, but you're still pretty regulated in education. You know what's expected of you. It's the same kind of pattern. And you're used to benchmarking yourself against other people academically. So what you get out, you put in, basically. And then, so the time out of there, it was okay because there was still a vaguely formulated plan. I think it's a very male-dominated degree that I did, and it was a very male-dominated department. Did they always understand me? No. Were they particularly very helpful with a lot of things? No, um, which I didn't expect. But, I, you know, got there in the end, off I went, got the jobs, and it just wiped out. And it was it was a really humbling moment for me because I think when you're poorly, especially when you're a graduate, I think you hold on to, I guess, almost the hope that when you're healthy and better, you'll be reset and you'll be given the same level of opportunity and the same access to opportunity and that's unfortunately just not the reality and there's some the you know if we're thinking about it and I'm trying to be quite sensible about it I can understand that from a commercial point of view certainly I sort of specialize in working with investment banks and finance areas now and yes they're regulated there's certain things they have to do there's certain ways around it but if you're only ever going to allow someone to apply for a graduate role for example if they've done an internship well anyone that's got a medical disability at university will take their non-elective procedures so um, any treatments to try and keep them going through the year any help they might need in the holidays Mm. as part of their learning support plan so whilst they're at university they're engaging as much as possible Mm. so you can't do a summer internship or you can't do work experience really not in a, in a formal setting because you haven't got the 10 weeks so you're never going to get there and the sort of I guess brick wall to entry is you're not allowed to apply for those positions in lots of places after graduating so you're never going to have the opportunity and that was quite a frustrating thing and I know diversity was a buzzword at the time and everyone spoke about it and I thought oh, I'll be fine there'll be, there'll be paths for me to enter and that was quite quite shocking for me. And, and with hindsight and here we're talking about your physical health and I know mm. we're not going to um, explore the details of that Is there something which your employer at the time could have done to better support you? Uh, I think that's a really difficult one because I think although certain employers have had certain difficulties and I do include, you know, university in that duty of care there as well, I think that they would have attempted to support me any way that I said I needed. I think whether they could have done that is very different. And I also think if you're going to ask a 21, 22-year-old girl who's never really been poorly and quite seriously poorly and has never had to deal with the small things like their own finances when poorly or making their own medical decisions when poorly, we can make reasonable adjustments for you. What do you need? Well, how on earth do you know what's reasonable? I don't. I haven't even worked before, so I can't tell you what I need in a professional setting and 
and you're not allowed to advise me because that's seen as leading me to what I do or don't want to do. Or you can say we can offer this, but what if I need something more? I don't know if I can ask for it. It throws more questions. And what I'm thinking with your role, Anne, is that you can be responsive to a certain extent, but part of your responsibility is to anticipate through understanding what might be coming next for someone because you have seen so many situations and for the individual it might be their first time of encountering a particular challenge or life change. Yes, I think it's really important that we, not just as a function but as an organisation, you know, think about putting ourselves in another person's shoes and think what, what's important to that person. An example of how we try and do that in O2 is we look at our employee journeys. It could be anything from I join, I go through my onboarding process, I get my first role, all the way through till I retire, for example. So what are those journeys that our people go from? And one of those in O2 is, you know, I need to take time out, um, either for physical reasons or, or emotional reasons or parental reasons, and therefore, what is it that person... What support does that person need? How often do we need to keep in touch with that person? What's appropriate? What does that person want? Let's go and have a conversation because everybody's different and everyone will need different levels of support. But I think there's a bit of a stigma about, oh, you know, that person's out of the business. I shouldn't speak to them. Absolutely not. I said, go and speak to them and understand what sort of support might they need and then let's provide it. So we, we need to somehow lose the stigma of, oh, if I speak to him, it might be illegal. I've heard that before. Yeah. My, you know, my person's on, one of my people's on maternity. If I can't speak to her because that's illegal. Of course that's not the case, but just find out what sort of support that person needs. And I think there's definitely a move to that, and I think it's nice to hear you draw attention to that too, because sometimes the overlap between physical health and mental health really encroaches, and when you're out of the business, or you're sort of iced out, so to speak, and you're not spoken to, that return can be quite quite stressful and quite scary, and you sort of think in your head, have they been talking about me? Or, you know, I believe in how I returned to JP Morgan, I didn't have a desk because it's a quick turnover. And you can, from a business point of view, understand why. But as a person, it's not easy. What I would maybe say and where I think we're starting to see some change and where I'm, I'm desperately think it's needed is there may well be those changes when you're in the business and the journey, but it's that access to get there that is really, really tough. Because so just say what you're talking about, access to... To actually have the opportunity, because if you're if you're judging graduates, and, and a lot of the time they're not judged blind, but they'll just be on experience so that other sort of biases can't come into play, it can be really tough because if you've had a leave of absence medically, you don't have to declare it, but you kind of do, because otherwise it looks like it took you the extra years to graduate, so you have to explain that somehow. Or I guess the assumption's a reset year or something, so you, you do sort of have to say even though... It's not directly there. So that's really interesting. So the point you're making is that you can then be overlooked, unintentionally overlooked. Yeah, and it's the unintentional part that I think is really important here because when you actually have these conversations with people, everyone thinks, oh my gosh, that's awful, that, that's not what we're doing, or that's not, you know, that's not what we're, we're aiming for here. But until you actually speak to the subset of people that it, that it impacts, you're not going to get these kind of conversations. And I think we always dial it back, I know we've had this conversation before, Ollie, where if there was a group of middle-aged white men sat around a table and they were having a discussion about maternity pay, which is something we've seen, you know, in, mm -hmm. in and you think, well, why aren't you talking to the women that this is actually relevant to? Why why are we talking here? And that's something that's kind of laughed about now, but that's been noticed by the industry as a whole. And we now see that women are being brought into those discussions, being put in the board positions, or given that power to make that change. When it comes to graduates, it tends to be that companies will speak to their own graduates 
who are not really going to tell you anything negative twofold. One, because they've succeeded. So obviously they're not going to have found those barriers or they're just not going to feel that empowered to say, do you know what? I actually thought you did this and it was pretty awful. You might get it put constructively where they say, I, I enjoyed the training, but I would have liked more online. Or So give us, Ria, give us your punchy advice then and Anne will Ooh. see how you respond. What should they do? <laughs> and maybe, Anne, you do it. Maybe you'll make a note. I think... <laughs> I know it won't be a very quick one, but I think the way that grad schemes are structured, so a September intake, training at a certain time, starting at a certain point, doesn't allow people that might need some time to recover from something or gain that experience. Or if you're anticipating that people have to have had experience before and then it times them out. So, for example, if I was to apply and say... I have no experience, I've had this instead, and I don't have enough experience, would you offer me an internship? Because a lot of the time, actually, time-wise, I wouldn't be able to apply for both. Or would you do something to help me yeah. get there? So, and quick responses on this, because I've got lots more I want to quiz you about in our, in our time, please. So, I think a couple of observations. Bringing graduates in as a cohort is helpful because then they have an immediate network that's a support network as well, so I, I do like that approach. I think what's really important is how you attract and recruit graduates. So, we do blind CV assessment. Just say what that means, then. It means that a manager does not see the CV, so doesn't see where they went to school, doesn't see where they went to university, don't care what, what qualification you've got. What I'm looking for is attitude because I can train you for skill. So, for me... The fact that you might have had time out is an irrelevance. If you've got the right attitude and you showed me that, you know, you want to succeed and you'd love to join an organisation like O2, that trumps skill and experience every time. And what do you say, Anne, to the university first year that says, I have worked my socks off to get into this prestigious university and Anne and her colleagues won't even look at it. So it's horses for courses. There are some organisations who want people from a Russell Group University with a first-class honours degree, and I get that. In an organisation that's serving customers, it's really important our people reflect those customers. So hate to say it, it is not relevant what qualifications that they have. Very interesting. Just tell us, in terms of this thought of overlooked, your returners programme has, I think, literally won awards. What is it and what did you learn from it? It started with a commercial uh, challenge where we couldn't recruit people in certain areas, particularly IT networks and cybersecurity. And we were really struggling to know what to do and we decided to turn the problem on its head and try and look for people that most other organisations wouldn't look for. And with a bit of research, we looked at women who'd been out of the, the market, so to speak, typically for maternity leave reasons, but not always. Some of it was health, some of it was caring responsibilities, whatever. So we started targeting women who'd been out of the employment market for anywhere between two and ten years. And we brought them in on a 14-week training programme, brought them in as a cohort, again, because they've got that supportive network, and they were paid. And what became increasingly apparent to me was it was just about them getting their confidence back in the workplace. And, and we gave them a, a mentor and we made sure that their managers were people who really understood how to bring people back into the workplace. And my ignorance is going to shine here, but was that then correlated with the skill set you were looking at when you're talking about cyber and tech? We, because my naive mind doesn't see that match. We went out specifically the first time we did it. We're now in our third year of this programme. The first year we went out specifically looking for those skills. And boy, we got those skills in abundance. And actually, I'm talking absolutely nonsense, aren't I? Because there are thousands of women that have worked in engineering roles in STEM mm. qualifications. Absolutely. Right. And the fact that they've had time out to have children or whatever is, is an irrelevance. Right. You know, it's like riding a bike. No, but I think these misconceptions are embarrassing, but they matter, don't they? Because otherwise, going back to our previous point, you don't see somebody as their full potential. Mm. 
you see somebody who's currently unemployed. And there's a danger, picking up on something that Ria said, is if you're assessing people on their past performance, you are absolutely discriminating against people who've had time out for whatever reason. So it's a very dangerous route to go down. Much more looking forward, look at potential. And of the that first cohort of women that we brought in, 80% of them secured jobs in 02. In year two, it was 90%. And last year, all the women who um, came on our programme filled vacancies in 02. So fantastic win-win. And the point is... They are so engaged and so loyal to the organisation that gave them the opportunity. That's you know, unbelievable absolutely. numbers. And what's that programme called then? What do you call it? We just call it our Career Returners programme. And interestingly, I was in one of our stores in Westfield and there were, a customer came up to me, a female customer, and she said to me, um, you the boss lady? <laughs> well, sort of. <laughs> and she said, um, I just want to say I applied for your Career Returners programme. I didn't get on, but I want to tell you, I think what you're doing is fantastic. And that was from a woman who, who was unsuccessful. So, you know, people out there saw that and thought, that's the way forward. Love it. Now, give us a top tip, Anne. Forgive me if this sounds trite. You've interviewed thousands of people, probably. Give us your top tip for acing an interview, because lots of our listeners will be thinking about their own career progression. Give us more than one if you want. Do your homework on the company and do your homework on the person that's interviewing you, because it's all out there. Yeah, like it. Give us another one. I like it. And Ria, I've got, I've got to ask you the same question, by the way. Uh, do not sweat over how you look. You just need to look clean and tidy. No one is, you know, no one is assessing you by the, the, uh, the suit that you're wearing or the colour of your shoes. Good, right, I like it. Ria, you've managed to get into some of the most competitive grad programmes in the country. I would say just be, be human. I think too often when we speak to a lot of students, the most frequently asked question is how can I make myself stand out? But if you're asking that and I have an answer, realistically I've probably given that same answer to hundreds of other people so then you're not, you're not standing out at all. So it's have the confidence... In yourself, the the way you're going to stand out is to just be an authentic human. I I got my first proper graduate job because I really rationalised with a woman that was at an event and actually we were both the only two drinking a glass of wine. Had a great conversation. She's now my, my lifelong mentor and I think she's brilliant. And it was just about having a conversation about the glass of wine, not can you get me a job? How will I start? It's too much. So to, to relax slightly. Yeah. Well, and just connect as human beings as yeah, well. And is that all right? Can we can we bond with you over? A... You can bond with me anytime, <laughs> especially every glass of yeah. wine. So, so, so here's my quick fire opportunity to ask you both. It's not about a glass of wine; it's about a cup of coffee. Actually, if you could sit down for a coffee with anyone, and who would you meet? Uh, the Obamas. That was my answer. Specifically, I wanted to speak to Michelle Obama, and then there we go. So maybe we could do that together. With Fantastic a idea. <laughs> no, okay. And who would you? Um, anyone else that came to your mind? It was the same. Yeah, it was the same. Just because I think she's a, a really wonderful, strong woman. Woman and she chose to step back from her career and I'm quite interested in that. I think it's a, a nice paradox how she found a new path from that. Mm. And yet the role as First Lady is yeah, intense it's incredible. independent in and of yeah. itself, I suppose. Um, a book you really recommend, it doesn't have to be a business book, Rhea, does one come to mind? Yes, um, there's a book called Money, A User's Guide and it's by Laura Watley and it's a relatively, I think it's pretty new, it was on the bestsellers list and I bought it just to see the hype and it looks a little bit like my new bank card and I thought, great, it's brilliant. It just breaks it down in a way that I wish was taught in schools because mm. money can still be quite an elitist thing where I suppose, you know, you're not really taught about totally. stocks and shares and what to do unless you go and work in it and by that time it's too much and you can't touch any of it anyway. Brilliant choice. And Mine is not a business book. It's a, a novel I read uh, at around about 17 or 18. It's called The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley and it's uh, set in Edwardian England. And it's so it's almost wonderful escapism, but it's just one of those books that just I read at 18 and just thought, it, you know, really struck me. It was about relationships, families, betrayal, and I absolutely loved it. So it's uh, nothing to do with the world of work, but The Go-Between by Go-between. L.P. Hartley. Right, we're going to link to it and uh, share that in our show notes. 
Finally, a piece of advice to your former self, Rhea, if you could go back in time, what do you say to a young Rhea Jahal? I think it's probably the same advice I still give myself now. And I think it's recognise where your strengths and your weaknesses overlap and focus on that. So I, I can be a real people pleaser. I really like to make people happy. I really like to do as much as I can for people. Um, and I was, you know, relatively intelligent growing up and I could always maybe do quite a lot of stuff. So I take quite a lot on board. But that tends to mean that things can get dropped and that's not fair on those people that you've maybe committed to. So for me, it's just about not over-promising and under-delivering, but just maybe keep it in my head that I want to do that for somebody um, and surprise them with it rather than set expectations and then fall slightly short. Brilliant advice. Really thoughtful. Thank you, Ria. Anne, what do you say to your younger self? I would say to my younger self, you are good enough. I like a lot of women particularly. There's that little voice on the shoulder that says, really, are you? You're going to be good enough? Are you as good as the bloke next to you? So you are good enough would be my advice to my younger self. Brilliant advice. Well, I've just got one final question because we've just got a couple more minutes. And when I go back to the first thing in your job description around human resources, you're surrounded by just these extraordinary people within O2. So just give us the one lesson you've learned about how we get the most from them. Is there something, somebody perhaps a peer of yours who's new in the role, is there something you would say to them to just perhaps frame their thinking in some way to help them? I think uh, one of the great, I believe one of the great strengths in O2 is that we want people to come to work and be themselves, you know, whether you use the word authentic or whatever. So if you can create an environment where everyone comes to work and can be themselves, you are creating a great culture in your organisation. So whenever anybody joins O2, you know, I'll spend some time with them and getting that point over that that will make the difference is really important. So not a command and control. Um, we will bring out the best of people by, you know, doing right by them and allowing them to be who they want to be. I love it. So, Ria, you've worked with some incredible companies. You're working with a whole range of companies now. Give us a sense of what's next. Ooh, what I hope to be next um, is definitely going to be looking at probably a little bit similar to the idea of a returners programme, and we see it sometimes with military leave as well, is some access paths for people that have had either caring or medical responsibilities and time's out for that to help them integrate within companies and have those experiences. Great. Well, I'm sure that will resonate with a listener or two. And Anne, you have a portfolio of roles. You're on the board of Step Up to Serve, all about young people volunteering, also a breast cancer charity as well. Is your plate full? Can we expect more hats on the hat stand? It's pretty full at the moment. And uh, I'm also expecting a grandchild in a few weeks. Yes, so, uh, Which is slightly bizarre because in my head I still think I'm 38. Um, so I think at the moment my hands are, are, are full. <laughs> OK, well, watch this space. It's a, a pleasure to connect you both and sit down with you today. Anne Pickering, Ria Jahal, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business in the Community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Salitzketa, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.